Welcome to Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Steve Bynum. In today for Jerome McDonald. The New York Times was the first to report that last night we were on the brink of war with Iran. President Trump reportedly ordered airstrikes on the country in retaliation for alleged attacks on oil tankers and for Iran shooting down a U.S. weaponized drone. Iran claims the drone was in its airspace. The U.S. claims it was over international waters. For analysis on this crisis, we now go to Joe Serencioni, president of the Plowshares Fund, an NGO dedicated to non-proliferation issues. Joe, welcome to Worldview. And unfortunately, we've had you on too much about this. <laughs> well, I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news, Steve, but thanks, man. Indeed. Thanks for having me on again. Absolutely. So, Joe, let's talk about that weapon. What did the Iranians shoot down? They shot down a Global Hawk drone. This is quite a formidable, unmanned, unpersoned, I guess, uh, aircraft, the RQ-4A Global Hawk. It's been around for about 10 years. It is a big, big drone. It's got the wingspan of a 737, so if you've been flying on a 737, you have some idea of how, how big this is. Yeah. It flies very high, about 60,000 uh, feet up, so about twice as high as commercial airliners fly, and it's equipped with very sophisticated uh, uh, s- sensors that can tr- use, use radar, electro-optical, infrared sensors to basically monitor uh, an area the size of the state of Illinois. As it turns out, uh, and it's it's probably one of the most advanced drones we have. It's a surveillance drone, basically. Yes, it's 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 gathering information through its sensors and then relaying them back to um, to the headquarters at the at stationed at Bahrain, the headquarters of the Central Command. So, we're p- reportedly, uh, President Trump was irate uh, because of the price tag of the drone being shot down around $100 million or so, and that went a great way into his reflexive action into um, launching this conflict. Did, have you heard anything like that? Uh, y- yes, this is quite an expensive piece of <laughs> yeah. equipment, about 120 actually, and mm-hmm. that's just the, the shelf cost, the procurement cost, as we say. And when you count R&D, the development cost, it adds another 100 million to it. So this is, we, we lost about, about $220 million worth of hardware. What's your guess on whether this uh, drone was actually in international uh space or over it, it wouldn't it, it wouldn't be unusual i mean they're, they're usually they're careful to try and stay in international space but as you know we have sent drones over iran before right some of our stealthier drones and iran has shot them down before so this is not an unprecedented uh, uh incident um it it, it the, the um it's curious that the military has not released the the data that would show us the, the flight pattern. They haven't mm. done it yet. Mm. Uh, it, it could go either way. You know, we're to, it's a very crowded space. Um, it, it could have drifted into Iranian territory. It wouldn't be unusual. Remember, just a couple of years ago, we had a ship that that, that drifted into Iranian territory, and um, some twenty U.S. sailors were captured. By I remember Iran. that. Fortunately, yeah. we then had a, quite a good dialogue with Iran. Our Secretary of State John Kerry was in constant communication with the Foreign Minister Gerard Zarif, and those sailors were released in less than 24 hours. We have no such communications now, which is why the risk of this kind of incident can, can so, is, is so critical right, and quickly right. escalate. So uh, do you think this was uh, a planned collaborative effort across the Trump administration, uh, bringing in various parties, uh, or was this simply a, a compulsive response from the president? 
Well, there are people in the administration that have been looking for a, a military action against Iran for, for some time, for decades, specifically John Bolton. I mean, back in 2003, when the Iraq war was looking good, the summer of 2003, he was asked, he was in the, he was in the George W. Bush administration at that time, and he was asked what lessons Iran and North Korea should learn from the invasion of Iraq, and he said, take a number. Mm. So this has been on his agenda for quite some time. Mike Pompeo, the same way. Uh, and apparently, according to the New York Times, uh, Bolton, Pompeo, and CIA Director Gina Haspel all recommended military action, knowing that this was going to result in the loss of, of Iranian lives. Uh, Trump is sort of being pushed into this, in my view, yeah. pushed into the military action, and they thought they had him. Apparently, they had him up until about 7 p.m. last night, and then he decided um, it, it, it better. He decided to think better of it for the reasons he'd been tweeting out today. Right. That he was informed it would cost about 150 Iranian lives. That's probably a low estimate, given the size of the strike they were likely planning. Um and and he's it, whether that's true or not we don't know but that's what he says. Yeah, and he apparently he was he was going back and forth with the Joint Chiefs and others about what's an acceptable number of dead people in order to launch this um, attack. Right. Remember, Iran didn't kill anybody here. They shot down a plane, uh, you know, which is uh, an unmanned plane. It cost a lot of money, but nobody died. You know, the last time there was this sort of. Uh, a, a, plane, a plane shot down. It was the U.S. back in the 80s, 88, I believe, that shot down an Iranian airliner that it thought was attacking it. We killed 283 Iranians. Mm. And so um, what we've been hearing is that uh, why did the president back off? You know, uh, there are reports that maybe the Joint Chiefs jumped in and told them to back off or maybe possibly um, Tehran uh, signaled in some way that they'd be willing to discuss some face saving measures to deescalate. Well, what have you heard? Two things. One. The, the pressure to attack, the pressure to initiate these kind of, this conflict, what, you know, we're calling it retaliatory, is coming from the civilians. It's coming from Bolton, Pompeo, and apparently with the acquiescence of CIA Director Haspel. The military is much more cautious on this, and, and they understand that this could escalate quickly. And that's one of the other things, again, according to reporting in the, in the New York Times, that the military told Trump. And this, I think, Trump is understandably hesitant about this. Remember, he came to office promising to take America out of these wars, right. not get us uh, deeper in. If we attack Iran, if we do this attack, it doesn't end there. That's not the last move. Iran will almost certainly counter with an attack of its own, and there are a number of targets it, 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 it can choose from, whether it's ships, U.S. forces that are stationed in Iraq, um, U.S. forces in Syria. It's a possibility it could strike out at Israel, which is why some of the Israeli military is advising caution. Again, a similar situation. The civilians, Bibi Netanyahu, would like to strike Iran. The, Iran, the Israeli military is urging us not to. So let's talk about that. So uh, there are a number of powers in the region, Saudi Arabia, the Gulf states, Israel, um, who have a stake in the game, so to speak. And what are you hearing about where they stand and where, how they're pushing in their role the, in this? The, the Saudis are the most belligerent on this. And there have been statements just in recent days about the need to, to, to retaliate. Um, a, a prominent Saudi paper, for example, just editorialized on the need for these are the logical next step is a surgical strike. And the Saudis and 
believe and, uh, that uh, that Iran is fragile. Uh, it's a little contradictory that you can think that a country that they claim is responsible for all the evil in the Middle East is also so fragile that a single strike will cause it to crumble. But that is their theory. That's the Saudis believe this. Uh, John Bolton has, has promulgated this, the idea of a so-called bloody nose strike. Sure. That would, so as they say, restore deterrence. So you punch them, you hit them, and that will cause Iran to back off and maybe even provoke a crisis in the government that could cause the regime to fall. I think that is a dangerous illusion. If they really believe that, um, we're, we're in some serious trouble because that makes it very likely that this kind of pressure from Saudi Arabia, from the United Arab Emirates, uh, from Bibi Netanyahu and inside the administration, Bolton Pompeo, is going to continue. And whether we, uh, we are not out of the woods yet. In my view, this is the beginning mm. of a very serious Iran crisis. It's not a, a, a one incident uh, and, and, and we're done event. Joe Cerizioni is president of the Plowshares Fund. We're talking about uh, how close the U.S. and Iran were to war last night. And so um, some of the reasons that the Trump administration has been uh, doing the saber rattling with Iran and Iran with the United States, part of it is over the uh, the Iran nuclear deal, which uh, – the U.S. pulled out of, but at the same, and then recently, last month, uh, Iran made the decision that it was going to pull back on some of its compliance with the deal. Uh, but Trump is risking war. The president, he says, to keep Iran from getting a bomb, but he pulled out of a deal that was doing just that. Wasn't that the case? That's exactly right. And this is the uh, the, the the Iran agreement, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, was arrived at after years of negotiation, had the support of all our allies, with the exception of Israel and Saudi Arabia, mm -hmm. uh, and, and the support of the military and the intelligence community, both here and in Israel. Uh, and what it did was roll back Iran's nuclear program to a fraction of its original size, froze it for 15 to 25 years, and put it under the most stringent inspection and monitoring uh, program on the planet. This is stronger than any other countries uh, and any inspection regime in any other country. So it was doing what Trump says he wanted, he wants to do, block Iran's pathway to a bomb. But he scuttled that agreement uh, and, and, but he hasn't been able to replace it with any kind of better deal. Instead, they initiated what they call this maximum pressure campaign. So we pull out of the agreement. We're actually technically in violation. There's no withdrawal cause, clause. And then we put on sanctions that are crippling Iran's economy. So they're in some severe economic pain. And we've been doing this for the last year. And so what do you expect is going to happen when you do that? It's understandable that Iran would take these kinds of of, of, of actions. It's not just about a drone flying too cr close to its its border. It's about them warning the United States uh, not to go any further. So, Joe, uh, critics have been saying that and asking the question, who's in charge? For instance, uh, uh, there are a lot of critics, yourself included, I'm sure that we don't have a national security process. We've got no secretary of defense. So if things get out of hand because it's not um, it's not a it's not necessarily a, we can't assume that there won't be a, uh, an attack in the next few days or weeks. And so if things do get out of hand, who is in charge and um, are things as incoherent as critics say they appear? Yeah. Yes. 
Uh, this is a very important point, Steve. We, we haven't had a confirmed Secretary of Defense since January. The man who was acting Secretary of Defense just a few days ago had to pull his nomination. For domestic um, abuse accusations, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Right. I mean, talk about a, a chaos. You know, a normal vetting procedure would have caught this a, a long sure. time ago. And we have no idea if if the, the, uh, Mr. Espy, Mark Espy, who's being apparently going to be nominated in his place – what it's it's impossible for that a person in that situation to have control over the Department of Defense to be acting in the way that a confirmed seasoned Secretary of Defense would be. So that means you have a Pentagon that's basically rudderless that mm. that doesn't trust the the civilian leadership there. So who's running the show? You have to say John Bolton is. He has scuttled the normal, what they call interagency process, where you would normally have briefings, discussions, maybe with the president uh, present, of all the top officials to go over the, st- the strategy, go over the options that you have. We haven't, we haven't done that anymore. There are no National Security Council meetings. What you have is a National Security Advisor, John Bolton, who's tightly controlling the information flow in and out of the Oval Office and stocking the National Security Council staff with his own um, his own people uh, who, who share his views, so so it's a, it's an extremely dangerous situation. In the case of a crisis, you, you're going to get this kind of chaotic decision making process again, and who knows which way uh, President Trump w- will go. Sure, and, and Joe, it's important to note that. Uh Planes were in the air and ships were on alert. It, 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 as a matter of fact, the order had gone out. The attack was in the process of happening. And then uh, there was this pullback. But what's interesting is that um, it seems to be the case that the president is throwing lifelines towards Iran by saying yes. that it was a minor attack and that maybe some lower level commander went rogue. He says someone loose and stupid. Um, so what do you attribute this pulling back to? Yes. Two things. One, I can't emphasize enough how unusual this is. I I can't think of another incident like this where an attack was underway. It was underway, correct. And then stopped. You know, we do not, should not be using our military like toy soldiers. You know, go, stop, go. This is very unsettling. And I, I have to believe the top brass is very upset about this. But why is he doing this? It's possible that Trump thinks he's executing a deft negotiating tactic, like he did with North Korea in the first year, sure. where he threatens fire and fury, or in this case, the end of Iran, in order to sort of create a negotiating value on his side of the table. And then he offers talks. The problem is that he's just pulled out of the agreement that we had. So there's tremendous mistrust on the mm. Iranian side. H- how can you trust this man? Or as the uh, UN ambassador uh, Iranian uh, UN ambassador to the UN said t- just today, "How can you, you can expect us to negotiate w- when someone's ha- is holding a knife to your throat?" And so there's national pride on their side. There's there's politics on their side. So we understand that through the offices of the government of Oman, President Trump offered talks last night mm. that he he said. An attack was underway, but he really didn't want war and he wanted to talk. The Iranians responded. They had to bring that up to the supreme leader. They couldn't decide right away. Trump called off the attack, still trying to get talks going. I would not be optimistic about the Iranians responding uh, to this gesture. But this is where we need intermediaries. Mm -hmm. We need the Europeans, maybe Oman, 
maybe even China, to try to intervene because what you want is to de-escalate this crisis. You want at least some military-to-military talks, and we have had those in the past, or State Department-to-State Department talks to at least de-escalate, to establish some rules of the road to make sure that there isn't another military incident like this, that we don't get as close to each other's fighting forces uh, as we are right now. Joe Cerencioni is president of the Plowshares Fund. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Steve Bynum. Coming up next, uh, film critic Milo Stalik will sit down with film critic Jonathan Rosenbaum to talk about the um, history and current state of film criticism. So stay tuned. So, Joe, uh, obviously, hardliners are running this policy on yes. the Iran side and the U.S. side. So what does this mean to you? What do you think these hardliners actually want? What are the objectives? What can we hope to get out of this? Even yeah. the best case scenario, right? We've we, we've talked from their mostly, perspective. Yes, we've talked mostly about the hardliners on the U.S. side, and and what they b- want is to change the regime in, in in Tehran. They believe that military action, like with Iraq, can topple this regime more or less quickly. That's their belief, and they and they and they and that's what that's their goal, and they've had it for a long time. So they will use an incident um, to justify implementation of this plan. On the other side, you also have hardliners in the Revolutionary Guard, one of the military components of, of, of Iran's military who want Iranian isolation, who are basically in a political war with the so-called moderates or pragmatists represented by President Rouhani, who want greater engagement, who, who struck the deal with uh, the United States and our international partners uh, several years ago. They want to integrate Iran back into the global economy. Mm-hmm. The hardliners want a more separated or tarkic system. So it's possible that a Revolutionary Guard commander took this action on on his own. I, I think it's unlikely, uh, given the nature of Iran's government, but it is possible. But you can bet that they're going to be pushing this and using this to wave the nationalist flag to stir up uh, a kind of a war fever with Iran. So that makes it a very dangerous situation. Joe, the way you're laying this out, it's almost as if we're more reliant on Iran's restraint than we are on our own. (laughs) (laughs) We have two cars heading for each other on a single lane road. And and in both cars, the passengers are struggling for control of the wheel. That's how tenuous and dangerous this situation is. So finally, Joe, um, if a hot war were to break out, you know, just lay it out for us. How bad could it be? It could get very bad. And this is why the U.S. military is so concerned. A a war with Iran is not like a a strike on Syria. It's not like Iraq. This is a nation of 80 million people. They've got major oil and natural gas reserves. They sit across the Straits of Hormuz, Hormuz, through which one-third of the uh, ocean-transported oil passes. They have a formidable military. We talked about the U.S. drone. We didn't talk about the Iranian defenses that shot this thing down. They demonstrated some formidable air defense capability there. So that means any attack on Iran that doesn't involve simply cruise missiles that starts to involve U.S. aircraft, it's going to be costly. Mm. We are going to lose planes. A ground invasion is completely out of the question. There's no way the U.S. could actually invade and take over Iran the way we did 
uh, Iraq. Uh, we don't even have the troops in the region. So this would be a, a, a war that would make the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan look like, like warm-up acts. It would almost certainly spike oil prices and, and introduce a tremendous economic shock into the world of financial and, uh, and commercial markets, likely triggering a global turndown and almost certainly a U.S. recession. And I believe this is one of the factors that is staying uh, Donald Trump's hand, not just his concern over the loss of life. Some of his advisors are telling him, you do this and you lose the election. Wow. Thoughts and prayers and fingers crossed. Joe Serencioni is president of the Plowshares Fund. Thank you, Joe, for checking in with us like you always do. And just keep us posted on what's going on. Thanks. Thank you, Steve. Film contributor Milos Stalik continues his three-part conversation with Jonathan Rosenbaum, former movie critic of the Chicago Reader. Today, they put themselves on the therapist's couch for a historical look at film criticism. I'm Steve Bynum, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Steve Bynum in today for Jerome McDonald. And our film contributor Milos Dalek sat down with Jonathan Rosenbaum, former movie critic for the Chicago Reader, for a series of discussions on film history. Rosenbaum's new two-volume set is called Cinematic Encounters. Volume 1 is subtitled Interviews and Dialogues. And Volume 2 is subtitled Portraits and Polemics. And if you heard parts one and two of their conversations on Worldview, you heard about the French New Wave and American Independent Film, respectively. And for the final installment, we bring you the talk they had on the history and current state of film criticism. You said that this is a very good time for film criticism. How so? Well, because the conversation is more open, open, global, continuous all of those things. You have to realize that there's more of everything on the internet. So there's more bad stuff. There's Mm -hmm. more bad criticism than there's ever been before. Mm -hmm. There's no question about it. And some people are so stymied by that that they don't see the good stuff. When the French New Wave started to call attention to all these filmmakers that were not recognized in the United States as artists at all, I mean, you know, the people like not only Hitchcock, but Howard Hawks and Nicholas Ray and Samuel Fuller. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Mm -hmm in this massive thing that was considered undifferentiated and not especially notable, all of a sudden it was became a rich living universe. And I think the same thing could be even said about film criticism, that most of everything is, you know, is mediocre or bad. But at the same time, if you're focused and you go on the internet with a sense of your own taste and what you're looking for, then the riches start to become apparent, particularly if you follow the people that you like and lead you to other people. It seems to me that the growth of availability of all these films, you know, through streaming and DVD and various kinds of platforms, even though there's been the kind of change in what it means theatrically, is very basic to this. And one reason why one of my great idols, Susan Sontag, where she wasn't part of this, was because for her, film had to be in a theater and uh you know, in a movie theater, and if mm-hmm. it wasn't there, it was dead. Mm-hmm. And that's why she wrote about the decay of cinema mm-hmm. and the decay of criticism and all of that. But that's because she didn't go to the Internet and she didn't watch films on but, TV okay. screens. But when you began writing in this period, it seems to me like film criticism 
Pauline Kael, Andrew Serres. These were large figures who had a lot of influence, were paid attention to, created a lot of discourse and a lot of argument. Later on, that was in some ways transformed or co-opted by uh, Ebert and Siskel in a thumbs up, thumbs down, which really reduced this whole necessity for argument. And I wonder if that same kind of theoretical, historical argument about film is still excellent. Because you can look at your body of work from the reader, from every place that you wrote, and learn a lot from it, number one. And number two is really get a sense of how you think about film. And very often today, when you read film criticism, it's this kind of thumbs up, thumbs down, like Well, it, but there's like... also, don't forget that there's academic writing about film. Sure. And even though most of it is deadly and boring, right. uh, part of the community I'm talking about is partly an academic community. I mean, the only festival that I get invited to every year and that I'm involved with right as a kind of administrative way, too, is a cinema retrovato in Bologna. And that's attended mainly by academics. And see, the most notable thing that went on was that even when Saris and Kale were considered, you know, like uh, important big figures, they didn't read the academics. Saris a little bit. Pauline, not at all. Virtually not at all. I mean, you know, there was one academic that she liked a lot because he liked her. And, you know, I can't even remember his name now. I think he was Polish or wrote in English. But, you know, it's like that was a closed door. And, of course, academic film studies started around the same time that I was getting interested in film. It was at the very early stages. I didn't have the option of studying film when I was at college. But it started soon afterwards. I mean, I had a film society you know, ran a film society at Bard because there wasn't a film department. And the only way to see films was to, you know, organize it myself. But but it seems to me that the way that film studies got into academia, which it had a very hard time getting accepted, right? Because it still isn't accepted by most people. Right. And so getting to be taken as a serious subject for academic study was a very, very difficult battle, which, as you say, has not been completely won. And I think that the way that it got in there was kind of on the back of modern literature, which meant adopting the critical arguments, the postmodernist arguments from... uh, Well, not only that, but there was also, unfortunately, the so-called social sciences, which, in other words, because, unfortunately, we don't like to admit it, but a lot of Americans hate art... Their way of going to film was to look at it as sociology or as psychology. You had all of this heavy-duty French theory of Lacan, Althusser, and all of this. And part of the problem is is that academia is as much ruled by fashion as uh, the mainstream, maybe even more so. And, you know, part of the problem in the mainstream is that there's a kind of brainwashing done by the industry which convinces people they're only – you know, five films of importance each week, usually, and those are the ones that have multi-million dollar ad campaigns. And also believe that that's what people want to see when it's all based on a kind of tautological thing where I've argued, you know, if you're offered a choice between orange juice spiked with shoe polish and orange juice spiked with toothpaste, and you choose, you know, the toothpaste, then they say, well, that's what you want, right? <laughs> because you've chosen it. That's kind of the way our choices in sort of like mainstream film culture usually operate. To a lesser extent now, because there are certain, you know, independent voices that are heard, although it's, you know, it's not as many as could be. You're listening to Worldview. I'm Elias Telic speaking with film critic, historian, scholar Jonathan Rosenbaum. 
The one other thing which is kind of evident from your two books, Cinematic Encounters, is the closeness which exists in the book and existed for you and I think existed perhaps for film critics of your generation between the film critic and the filmmaker, that there was a relationship. Yes, because, and of course, that was started by the French New Wave by having all these critics. And of course, to a lesser extent, because, I mean, Peter Bogdanovich was a an important journalist, but less of a critic than, um, you know, like a fan. Right, a fan, right, right. But, I mean, in the sense that you knew them and you were one-on-one and discussing them, so there was a relationship in the sense that there was a dialogue. Yes. Yeah, right. Yeah, the theme of my two books are really dialogues and exchanges rather than the idea of the solitary voice. And I think there's a kind of tendency, and it's part of the American ideology almost, to, to not see things collective which I think damages our politics as well as our our aesthetics. Do you see that the critical aesthetic about film has changed, is changing? It's always been changing. I don't think there's any point in which it hasn't been in a process of change. But I like to think that the reason why it's changing is precisely because of the dialogue and not because of the idea that, you know, that one ex-cathedra judgment following another ex-cathedra judgment. That's a very shallow way to look Mm. at it. Even though I have to say that my favorite American critic is sort of like someone who represents the, not the ex-cathedra judgment, but the person all alone out on a limb by himself, Mm. which is Manny Farber. But I think Manny Farber viewed film criticism as an art form, and that's not a popular position at all, Mm -hmm. but it's one that I share. Mm -hmm. And that's why, for me, the form of the writing is very important, the form of particular articles and so on, that it's experimental practice. It's seen in sort of degraded terms, like parasitic and, you know, like it just sort of feeds on the artist and it would be meaningless without the all of this. But no, I see it as part of the dialogue. Films have dialogues with other films. Texts have dialogues with film. Films have dialogue with texts and so on. What culture is, is a dialogue, I think. Given the changes in technology which make so much of cinema so accessible, more accessible than it's ever been in history, right? What are the danger points? What are the danger points in having this accessibility? I would say that the lack of urgency that kind of enters into this, that everything is available, therefore it'll be there. You don't really need to move to... Well, you know, I've just been rereading a book by George W.S. Trow called Within the Context of No Context about television with the whole idea that everything becomes, you know, like polling and He says, basically, society is reduced to lonely individuals and hundreds of millions of people, Mm -hmm. and there's nothing in between. Mm -hmm. And there is a kind of way in which that's true of the culture we're talking about Mm -hmm. now, that I think that there's a way in which people get lost in the number of choices. But that's why what is necessary in order for dialogue to happen in a meaningful way is that people have to work out their own agendas. Mm -hmm. And most people, rather than work out their own agendas, let the studios and the media outlets determine them. So so critics, in that sense, are more needed than ever. And at the same time, of course, they're losing platforms and losing ground. That's right. But they're still important as pivots. And works of art are pivots, too. In other words, one work of art leads to another work of art Mm -hmm. in in various ways. I mean, you know, you see a film on a certain subject and it gets you interested in a book on that subject. Or there are all kinds of interactions. But the point is, is that if you don't have an agenda... You wind up in the default position, and the default position is, you know, uh, 
comic book spectaculars, which I don't go see. I mean, one of the reasons why I like being not in a regular reviewing position anymore is that I can choose what I view. I mean, I had to spend most of my time at the reader seeing movies I really didn't want to see. And which is what most reviewers, right. they don't admit that, but that's what they have to do. And if they say that they don't like most of what they're seeing, they either lose their jobs or they're in special categories like John Simon or somebody mm-hmm. like that. The point is, is that you're expected to help sell the latest releases. That's the way your job is perceived. Well, that's how you're paid, but it's how the media, medium, also makes money because they sell ads, right? Well, and, and of course, uh, here I am promoting my own book, so well, I'm doing okay, the same but, thing. But, but there's no cash involved, so. <laughs> right, except that's buying true. the book. Yeah, yeah so, that's true. Which you should do, by the way, because I think it introduces you to some people that you know and maybe not know enough about, and so it deepens the experience of what you know about them and also the new people. So it's that eclecticism of it is really, really, really very wonderful. Well, one of the things that has mattered more and more to me as I've grown older has been that the quality of one's audience is much more important than the quantity. And the best illustration of I can think of of that is that I have a website, jonathanrosenbaum.net, which has, on the average of close to a 1,000 people a day from all over that's the world. Great. And that's the dialogue I'm talking about. There's more dialogue in that audience than there was in the audience I had at the Chicago Reader, which was much larger, of course, much, much larger, but was not as interactive partly because the internet had not grown to the same degree. And also, you know, when you write for a publication like The Reader and you get on the internet and you get feedback, a lot of it winds up being hate mail and stuff. And I don't get any hate mail. Well, well, that's very good that you don't get hate mail. But I mean, I do think that when you were writing for The Reader, that there was a great deal of interaction because you may not have had that feedback loop through the internet. But I mean, on the other hand, people did care about what you were going to review and what you were going to say about it. No, I'm not trying to dismiss that. I mean, I was incredibly lucky to have that job. And in fact, I wouldn't have the position I have now if it weren't for having had that job. You were there 17 years? 20. 20 years, 20 years. Yeah. And the incredible thing is, is that I had privileges that no one who's been a film critic in the United States has ever had. I had unlimited length and I don't know anybody who's ever had that. Also, I could write about a film as long as it was playing in Chicago, even if it had opened six months earlier. Mm -hmm. And that wasn't true for the whole 20 years. It was true for about maybe 17 or 16 of those years. And one reason why I retired what I did is that I didn't have those freedoms anymore. Well, and I mean, you had a great degree of freedom, I would say more so than if you were working for daily newspaper. Absolutely. In terms of what you chose to cover. That's right. And, of course, this was a pathway that had been established by my predecessor, Dave Kerr, who's the one who recommended me for the job, you know, as his replacement. The point is, is that we did have an independent press now. We don't have an independent press now because at a certain kind of way, it's almost ideological. There was a feature, I don't know if it still exists, but did for a long time, called What the Reader is Reading, and then they give you recommended. It's all mainstream stuff. They don't recommend other independent things. The point is, it seems to me that the independent press committed suicide by trying to imitate Time magazine, when, of course, if it's a Chicago Reader versus Time magazine, Time is always going to win. So the two books are Cinematic Encounters, Interviews and Dialogues, and the second volume is called Cinematic Encounters, Portraits and Polemics, and I've been speaking with film critic, historian, 
scholar, forever discover, I would say, an adventurer, because that's the one thing that's really constant throughout your career, too, is that you always kept looking for something and someone new who would surprise you and Yeah, I also want to emphasize, because people often think that I'm only interested in esoteric people, but some of the figures that I deal with in this book, not just people like Orson Welles, but like James L. Brooks and Elaine May and Jerry Lewis, and people who, let's say, are very mainstream, but are not, to me, adequately recognized or understood by the mainstream. Thank you very much, Jonathan. Yeah. Stay tuned to WBEZ 91.5 for Weekend Passport with our friend and fellow traveler Nari Safavi. This week we take you back to 1865 for an exhibit that commemorates Juneteenth, the holiday when black Americans were finally free from slavery. I'm Steve Bynum, in today for Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview from WBEZ 91.5 FM. Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Steve Bynum in today for Jerome McDonald. And every Friday, our culture contributor Nari Safavi is in for Weekend Passport, where he shows us how to travel the world without leaving Chicago. Good day, Nari. Good day, Jer- uh, good day Steve. I, uh, I know. It's no, I was right. going to say He's Juneteenth back Monday. Day. I thought you were going to exactly. okay. Right. I was going to get into the <laughs> Juneteenth Day, actually, because Juneteenth Day is a very special day for me. And today and this weekend is a coincidence of several things. But my birthday is on Juneteenth Day. Absolutely. And I'll also, you know, we've been talking about this uh, potential crisis with Iran, and you have a very good Persian take on what's been happening. Yes. Well, uh, this also, uh, yesterday was the longest day of the year, which right. is the uh, which is a celebration of a holiday for Persians, the changing of the calendar, changing of the seasons. And it's also myth- mythologically the day where Arash Kamangir, Arash the bowman, mm. who was a mythological Persian warrior in a war with the Greeks where they were trying to dispute the border of Iran and Greece will be. Mm. He fired his bow mm. as a way to settle the dispute and put his life into the projection of that bow. And basically, uh, and he and where the bow landed became the new border between Iran and its enemies. And that's what the mythologically is when uh, an athlete, bec- a, a warrior becomes an athlete for the cause of peace. Instead of violence and the, and the arrow, which is a spear that is supposed to be uh, a, an instrument of violence, mm. becomes a symbol of peace and a symbol of direction of human beings have to go for peace. So symbologically, uh, this uh, President Trump's uh, decision not to start a war with Iran yesterday coincides with that interesting mythological moment in Persian history. And I find those connections just too powerful to ignore. Thank you, Nari. It's very poignant. I appreciate that. And so where are you going to take us first? We're going to go and celebrate the Juneteenth Day. And uh, this is a, there is a really fascinating exhibition going on at Co-Prosperity Sphere that has uh, historically had several 
several different uh, really interesting uh, things that we have covered in the past. And we have a couple of interesting guests. Uh, we have uh, J.V. Montgomery over here with us, who is an artist who's participating in it, and Nick Wiley, who is one of the organizers and co-curators of the show. Traveling from um, Galveston up here. For, exactly. You know, from Galveston, wonderful. Texas, and bringing in all kinds of things of symbols of uh, black slavery in, mm-hmm. in Texas and oppression and Jim Crow. Uh, anyways. Well, Nick and JV, welcome to Worldview. Thank you. Hi. Thank you. And we're really wonderful to have you here. So, you know, JV, we think about Juneteenth and how does that resonate with you and um, the work that you're going to be doing here? Um, well, Juneteenth is a very special date because to me it uh encapsulates so much about america um the idea that freedom was hidden mm. from this population of enslaved people for two years yeah for two years five months and 18 days after the emancipation proclamation was um became law mm. so we've all felt um maybe we've Many people in America have felt that their hours at work maybe weren't counted up right sometimes. Um, but could you imagine, besides being born into slavery, working for two years, five months, and 18 days after the fact that you should have been free? Mm. Yeah. So that means all the suffering, the death, whatever happened in those two years, those were two years that were sort of lost or that existed in this non-reality Right, this sort of purgatory. Exactly, exactly. Of existence. Well, Nick, tell us about the the exhibit. Uh, so the exhibit is called Shut Up Stone Mountain, um, and it's got eight artists in it. Uh, Jose Guadalupe Garza, um, who's from St. Louis. Jessica Gatlin, who's um, moving to D.C. Sarah Getz, uh, they live in the Bay. Danielle Haddad, um, who's um, between Chicago and Mexico uh, right now. Jesus Hilario Reyes uh, from Puerto Rico and Chicago. And uh, Leah Solomon um, from Eritrea living in Chicago, uh, David Nasca, uh, Chicago, and Sandy Williams uh, IV, who's uh, in Mexico City right now, um, having just graduated in Virginia. Um, and the show is at Co-Prosperity Sphere, open through June 27th, and it um, collects a bunch of artists who um, spent time at a residency in Wisconsin last summer mm-hmm. um, and invites them to think about histories of monumentality and also this unmonumental moment where artists kind of rejected the monument in the 90s. Um, and so we've been uh, thinking and talking about that with my co-curator, uh, Naya Butler, um, who's in Texas right now, and I wish could be here with us. But uh, the show uh, opened earlier this month, and we were uh, really excited to um, welcome JV and his collaborators, uh, who did uh, just arrive in Chicago from uh, Galveston and the pilgrimage uh, that they took uh, for Juneteenth last night. Yeah, you know, um, in on June nineteenth, eighteen sixty five, at Galveston was where General Granger gave us the good news that freedom was finally had. And so, one of our collaborators, Lisa E. Harris, she's a vocalist from Houston. So, you know, we we were going to start there, but she's also a reason to start there. You know, mm-hmm. we have we have a collaborator who's of this improvised free music movement that we are doing um, a la Sun Ra, a la um, Art Ensemble of Chicago. And she happens to be an African-American woman from the place where we get Juneteenth. And so from there, we go to 
or we traveled to New Orleans. We played at the New Quorum. The next day, we um, went to Congo Square. Nice. And began our um, site-specific ritual sound performance based in deep listening and improvisation. And after New Orleans, uh, on our way up to Nashville, we stopped in Africatown, Alabama. You know, they recently um, have been on NPR because the lore there was that at the end of the slave trade, there was a slaver who was told he couldn't bring a ship in the harbor. And so he set it on fire. And this was the lore, you know, but nobody ever found the ship. And recently the ship was found. So hopefully that'll maybe bring some tourism to them. But, um, you know, this migration that we're taking also mimics the migration of African-Americans, of freedom for African-Americans, you know, from the spot of Juneteenth to the home of jazz through Nashville, stopping at James, James Weldon Johnson's house, mm-hmm. you know, because he actually um, had a tenure at Fisk University in the 30s. And he's the author of the Negro National Anthem, Lift Every Voice and Sing. And we've, we've got some, um, an example of some of the um, work you're going to do. So uh, why don't we play a clip and uh, you can describe the clip after we play it. Absolutely. Surprise me, Mike Gilmore. Yeah. Exactly where are we going to be? JV, you want to tell us something about that? Yes, that is the track Slave to Employee off of our new cassette recording on International Anthem Records, a hometown all-star label right now. Um, It's myself, JV Montgomery, and Ben Lamar Gay. And we go by the name Freddie Dougie. Hmm. And the album name is Live on Juneteenth. And see, you laugh because you... You, know. you recognize where <laughs> Freddie Dougie comes from. That's right. yeah. Yeah, that's right. And there is actually a distinct uh, part of the exhibition that shows the post-slavery black labor being sort of uh, diminished and devalued as a part of the legacy of right. slavery. Right. You know, yeah. Oh, you know, after after Juneteenth and into Reconstruction, you see essentially America attempt to become mm-hmm. equal, attempt to give black Americans freedmen's land in South Carolina and Georgia. But then you also see Andrew Johnson come in uh, from Tennessee right after Lincoln's death and take all that away. Yeah, he's and a character. So, yeah. President Johnson. Um, I'm listening to a um, podcast, 1865, on mm-hmm. Wondery, where they, you know, they do dramatic uh, readings and acting um, on uh, what happened immediately after President Lincoln's assassination. And Andrew Jackson is... Johnson. Uh, Johnson, that's right. It's a hot mess, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so to speak. My theory lately is that the South won the war because we have, you know, the Tennessee Army fighting for 11 days after Andrew Johnson becomes president. He takes away the freedman's land. He breaks up ideas of Reconstruction um, or it's, and starts further ideas that are going to lead into Jim Crow. Hmm. 
um, the idea that we got freedom mm-hmm. would have existed if we would have gotten land in the mule. Right. You know. Here, here's here's a little observation that's a little bit more theoretical. I wonder what you guys think about that. Uh, coming as an immigrant to this country, I found the Americans in general, uh, and of course, generally speaking, you're usually wrong. You're always <laughs> wrong. But in general, I found the Americans to be very ahistorical, mm. not aware of history. Oh, absolutely. With two exceptions. Mm. One was African Americans. They seem to really understand that history matters, yeah. like the way we did in the old world. Yeah. And also, white Southerners. Mm ironically happen to care about history also care about is an interesting way to say yeah (laughs) yeah and uh and seems like you are trying to appropriate some of those symbols historical symbols into a new narrative a new way understanding our own history absolutely i think history is extremely important because you know right now there's a talk about reparations and reparations talk began in the 1800s with a lady from Nashville called Callie House. Uh, This is not something new. And when you look at European immigration to the United States, European immigrants were advertised to to come get free land and get farming assistance while free African-Americans were left to be sharecroppers in a really indentured servitude state. So, yeah, history is extremely important. Yeah. J.V. Montgomery is a Nashville-based multi-instrumentalist, sound designer, and composer. And he's one of the artists in Freddie Dougie. He's with uh, Nick Wiley, and he's a co co-curator of Shut Up Stone Mountain exhibit at Co-Prosperity Sphere in Bridgeport. And so, do I hear something coming up there? Oh, my goodness. It's called Galveston. Bring it up a little louder, Mike Gilmore. <laughs> Maybe we could just uh, talk about the fact that uh, the ensemble is playing tonight mm-hmm. at the Promontory yep. at 5311 South Lake Park Avenue in the Hyde Park neighborhood in Chicago. Uh, with us is going to be Ben Lamar Gay, Lisa E. Harris, Angel Bot Dawid, and Julian Otis. We're going to be improvising on ideas of freedom in this great city that has provided um, an immense amount of creative freedom to generations of African And some of the music of Sun Ra, I believe, will be, will be played too. Yeah, you know... Inspirations I, from Sun Ra. Sun Ra and his life have set off uh, pathways for people that seemingly will be infinite. Well, this has been a very uh, educational and psychedelic moment. So thank you very much, JV and Nick Wiley and Nari Safavi. Thank you, WBEZ. Absolutely. Jerome McDonald is back with us on Monday. We're going to keep our eye on what's happening in Iran. And Monica Ng will join us also to talk about food and culture on Food Mondays. Thanks again. I'm Steve Bynum. You've been listening to WBEZ.